Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. I felt like it was a game of chess, but unfortunately the pawns were actually people and they became arguably a little bit expendable if it meant that I could win the game of chess. And that's probably the best description that I can give of how I felt my police career, uh, what it evolved into. Dave Evans was a member of Victoria Police for 23 years. Until you guessed it, he was ill health retired due to what Dave would prefer to call a psychological injury, which I really like, but most of you will be more familiar with the term PTSI. And remember, it's an injury, not a disorder. Hence why I'm trying not to refer to it as PTSD. When Dave and I got chatting, there was something he said which really resonated with me. It really touched me. And to think that it was a man who was prepared to explain his feelings the way he did was just really incredible. Dave left policing because he realised Victoria Police's values and morals didn't align with his own. Dave began to feel the weight uh, of encouraging a victim to report a traumatic offence when they were hesitant or didn't feel they could do it. The impact of requiring a victim to explain the most intimate, often humiliating and embarrassing details of, let's say, like a sexual offence in a statement, for instance, witnessing them going through a tough cross-examination in a courtroom, having to bear their soul to strangers, having the accused listening to every word they say, and after days and sometimes weeks of this, for the case to be dismissed or lost, Due to a legal technicality, it took its toll on Dave as he was the one who had to pick up the victim's broken pieces. Dave would try to reassure them that they'd done a great job, but in the back of his mind was always the thought that he had encouraged them. He had maybe even persuaded them to go through this court process or the whole reporting process. The justice system has broken too many victims, but it also broke Dave. The day Dave realised he'd had enough is a really powerful story. Dave and I feel similar in our thoughts on the justice system. So often the justice system seems to disregard or even maybe ignore the victim's emotions and well-being. Too many in the justice system see their role in the court system as just that a role not taking into account the victim or witnesser who are the real people in this whole thing with genuine fears and anxieties. Yes, it may be just a job, 
to them, but to the victim, it is the most anxiety-ridden, nervous-upsetting experience they will probably ever have to endure. And don't get me wrong, I've got some very, very dear friends in the justice system who I know show enormous care and compassion for victims, like most. But there are a few too many who see a victim or witness as a file and they go straight on to the next file once that one is done and dusted. Dave went into psychology and social work after policing and he's at pains to prove and encourage others that there are other careers outside of Big Pole, even when you believe there's nothing. Just ask Dave, and me for that matter. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Dave, and um, my heart goes out to you. I believe you're a, uh, a Ruse supporter, and for those the listeners, AFL is a constant with all of us, isn't it, Dave, all of us Victorians, but I'm feeling your pain because our coach has left as well. Yeah, it's been a... a, a- Big few years for the Mighty Kangas. Um, you know, they've had a, a lot of instability with their coaches and um, I think it's it's disappointing but I guess that's the way things are and it's a it's a real a game of uh, pressure and expectation now and yeah, I think yeah. it's taking its toll on a lot of people, players and coaches and, and the rest of the staff, I guess. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And what I really admire is the fact that there are now coaches who are saying, putting up their hands and saying, I need a break. I cannot deal with this. Uh, mentally, I need a break. And I think how powerful is that for the community to hear that somebody like an AFL coach who we all look up to as strong, uh, really um, passionate about their job, they'll do anything for it, but they know or they're beginning to feel a lot freer, aren't they, about saying, no, it's taking its toll and I need a break. It's a huge step, don't you think? Oh, huge, and I, I think I, I sort of look at um, you know Alistair Clarkson and um, his standing within the football community, and I think because you know, I mean there's been um, other coaches who have perhaps left because of um, you know the, the sort of they've they've run down or they're um, mm. feeling overwhelmed by the whole thing, but I think because of his standing, it's really made a strong impact. I think on the the whole community in that. If somebody like him is prepared to make us you know, make that decision and have the courage to step up and um, take a break and mm. call it out for what it is, I think that gives a lot of people a lot of confidence to then perhaps come forth and do the same. Whereas historically, because of the the type of game that it is and the bravado that's associated with it, um, it would have been very difficult. So I think it's a really good step in the right direction and. Um, others have done it, but I think Alistair Clarkson, um, as I said, and and now obviously um, even the Richmond coach uh, has done the same. So I think they're two coaches who um, are very uh, well respected and influential in in the fraternity of AFL. So I think it's mm. it's hopefully going to support others who are struggling to come forward and not only step down if they need to, but at least get the support that they're looking for. Oh, I agree. And I think it's a bit like, say, um, Graham Ashton, when he stood down from his role as Chief Commissioner with our uh, with Victoria Police, I think that was a really powerful message to a lot of members that it can happen to the Chief, it can happen to anyone. And I think, as you say, it's a really powerful message that it is okay. Yeah, to put your absolutely. hand up and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not managing. So, Dave, uh, let's. We could talk about football. In fact, I could talk about football ad nauseum, <laughs> but we need to move on. Yeah. Um, so, tell us about your police career. Give us a little bit of an insight. You uh, maybe a couple of places where you worked, maybe some interesting jobs that you attended, and for whatever reason, I imagine in 23 years, a lot would have stayed with you. Uh, can you take us through a couple of them? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I graduated and went when I graduated, I went straight to Cranbourne Uniform, which I kind of reflect on those years there and the people that I worked with and the culture of that station probably as the best years of my, my policing life. 
the the senior members that were there, the sergeants and the senior connies, were just fantastic. They were really supportive. Um, you know, they they sort of gave you the uh, the opportunity to develop. Um, and and I think their culture there, when I compared it to other stations and stories I'd heard when I'd go back to the academy, whether that be the um, the social culture or the the treatment um, of trainees within this station, um, I think that it was a very healthy place to be and somewhere mm. that really – I was fortunate. I felt really fortunate to be there. Um, and, look, it certainly wasn't anywhere near as uh, as busy as it is now. Um, mm. But I guess the type of work was similar um, and – Perhaps look. There's a few. There's a few stories that I could probably talk about, in in so far as the support that you did receive. So, one of the um, when I very first got there, probably must have been my first few days, I think, and um, I think I was probably nervous to answer the phone in case somebody asked me the time because I would have been like, oh my goodness, what time is it? I was that nervous about the new role. Um, but I remember a, a guy come in. Um, and he had a warrant, an outstanding warrant, and he, he came to me and I was on the desk and he explained to me uh, that there was a warrant that he had to come in and um, get bailed and all the rest of it. And, and I was like completely confused, but I thought, oh, I better have a crack at this myself because I don't want to annoy everybody. <laughs> so I went and found the the warrant in the box that was there and um, uh, and brought it back to him and said, look, you know, we're going to have to just take you around the back and do some stuff. And he sort of went, oh, well, actually, I'm, I'm not really available at the moment. I'm probably, I've got a bit of stuff on. He goes, can I come back later? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't see why not. <laughs> so so I, um, I said, well, look, what about if I just give you the paperwork and uh, you, you go do what you got to do and then you bring it back with you and we'll sort it out then. And oh. I remember I sort of, he left with it and I went back out yeah. the back and the, the senior Connie that was there, they said, hey, what was that all about? And I explained to him what happened and he was like, oh, no. <laughs> so anyway, there was kind of this uh, mad panic, and uh, they got onto him actually by phone, which was convenient. And uh, it, you know, sort of obviously had a bit of a word to him about the situation, and he came back fortunately, and it was all resolved. But it was kind of like the way that they managed it; they were, they didn't condemn me. They obviously yeah. uh, had a bit yeah. of fun with it, but uh, yeah, I bet it, they did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was something that was, you know, spoken about for years to come. But it was, yeah, it was a good example of how the members there really sort of did support you, even when mm. I when I made such a really as a terrible error. But um, so yeah, it was there. It was really good. I enjoyed it there. That was probably, as I said, my my, my fondest memories were there, and I still have some contact with quite a few of the people who supported mm. me in that early development. Uh, and then you, I, you, you know, sorry, just to interrupt there, Dave. Yep. It, that makes a big difference about your supervisors because I can remember an um, interview I did with a former member a couple of months ago now, and the first station that he went to was just so inept in so many ways, and uh, he spoke of the laziness, for instance, and the laissez-faire attitude of so many of the members that it really affected him to the point where he thought, nah, this isn't what I wanted. Like just the difference and how important it is to have good supervisors and people, like you said, you could have been hung out to dry about that. Uh, warrant issue but they had yes they had a bit of fun with it but you learned they obviously told you or explained to you what should have happened and so next time it wouldn't have happened but it's just so important isn't it to have good supervisors people that are people people because to be honest Dave I don't know about you but a lot of supervisors that I've found in my 27 years, they weren't really, they might have been brilliant detectives or brilliant police people, but they didn't know how to manage people. Did you find that? Yeah, definitely. I, and, and I think that's why I really did like it at Cranbourne because the, the, the senior members there were quite senior, um, sergeants and senior connies, and they really were people people as you, you've sort of expressed and 
Um, and it made a huge difference because, I mean, you're sort of really vulnerable when you first join, I think, and you come into oh. this job and, you know, you go through your training at the academy, but all of a sudden you kind of put out there with the equipment on and uh, make these sort of huge decisions moment to moment. Mm. And mm. without that support and I guess knowing that you can make mistakes um, and be supported through that, in that, especially, I mean, obviously, you know, if you make that mistake after you've been in the job for a very long time, then perhaps the conversation's different. But at that early stage, to be supported the way I was, I think um, it, it sort of allowed you to, firstly, it motivated you to learn more and understand the processes better. Of course, yeah. Um, uh, and I think that that was partly because of the way you were, you know, the, the people there supported you to understand it. You went to your, you know, I've got to get this right because it really does create problems for everybody. Um, mm, mm. So, yeah, it was, it was really good. But I think that was the key is that they were just motivated to do the job properly but in a caring and compassionate way. Mm. But also with that attitude that they had with you, it encourages you to learn and it encourages you to ask and not feel a dill yep. when you don't know how to do something. Yeah. It, it's just it's um that that sort of support i'd have to say was pretty rare i reckon in my in my career you know you asked a question and they'd go you should know that well yep. i might should have known it but i didn't yeah. and so it made you very very unsure of asking another question so um no uh, i think um hats off to cranburn and cranburn the main issues would i be right in saying cranburn for the listeners it's uh southeast southeast south of uh, yeah, melbourne yeah. and would it would i be right in saying there's um, a lot of um, public housing down there, a lot of very vulnerable people. Is Would that be fair or not really? Look, there's certainly yeah, parts of Cranbourne. Uh, there's a lot of public housing. Obviously, it's expanded massively now and there's all those new housing mm. estates. And um, But certainly back then, yes, it was, it was a fairly, I guess, a small town really in comparison to the rest of Melbourne. Mm. Um, mm. And, yeah, there was, there was a fairly... Um, significant area of social housing, and uh, and that you know obviously um, as as is often the case in in that sort of lower socioeconomic areas, there's issues around um, you know family violence, antisocial behaviour, which happens everywhere, regardless of uh, you yes, know social does. economic yeah. status. But it certainly mm. was prevalent there, and um, and I thought that the the members. The senior members really uh, handled and dealt with the the people in the area, regardless of their status, um, their social status. Um, they did it with, uh, you know, in a, in a in a way that really demonstrated quality and compassion. Yes. I thought yeah. it was it was a, it was yeah. a really good start to a police career. I thought I was very fortunate, and particularly like going back to the academy. Um, and having conversations, you know, in that first couple of years with with other squad mates and hearing some of the stories and just thinking to myself, wow, that's yeah. a con that's a huge contrast to what I'm sort of experiencing where I am. Oh yeah, and, and you then um, you worked in a number of, uh, uh, I suppose, a lot of your career was down south. But when did you join Socket? Because obviously that is a, a common thread with both of us. Uh, which, uh, it, you know, I just love Socket. I love the work they do. I love what they stand for. Uh, tell us about Socket. So you had to be a detective to work at Socket. So where did you become, where and when did you become a, a detective? Yeah, okay. So uh, um, uh, I guess my, my my ambition probably from early on was to, to look at that sort of investigative role. And um, I did a few things along the way. Um, but then I sort of found myself coming back to uh, family violence and that real strong interest in in socket. And so to to sort of get to that point of perhaps becoming a detective, I went and did some temps at a tasking unit. Um, mm. And predominantly, we we worked uh, on sort of drug investigations and um, statutory offences, I guess. Um, and and being there and doing that was was a really enjoyable sort of twelve or eight, twelve months or so. But it certainly confirmed 
in my mind that I wanted to work with or investigate crimes where there was an actual victim as opposed to a statutory offence. And I know that yes, there's there's yeah. multiple victims in in you know as a result of drug crime, so it's not saying yes. that there's not. But um, I felt that the motivation for me came from working with with individuals um, who were victim survivors of crime, and um, so then that kind of basically led from there to applying. And by the time I, so I, historically socket. Um, uh, well, I guess when Socket started, it, it changed from being a, a uniform operational member working at the soccer unit and then the detectives doing it and it combined and became uh, what was commonly known now as Socket. Um, so I applied for a job at Socket um, and, and got it because I really wasn't that fast necessarily about working uh, just – in any other areas as a detective. So it really was my, my focus was on going to socket. Mm. So that's what I did. And um, fortunately, I, uh, I was lucky enough to get a position. Um, and it look, it was a very rewarding role. Um, what I found is that the things that I loved about it were probably the things that arguably became a little bit of um, – Maybe my downfall. I sort of look at it as a bit of a double-edged sword, uh, and <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. It was like engaging with the victim survivors of the crimes that I investigated, and um, you know, building that rapport and uh, really sort of having that professional relationship that is is certainly next level. Really motivated me to investigate the crime as thoroughly as I possibly could which was fantastic, but it also, in hindsight, and I didn't necessarily realise it at the time, um, it certainly um, meant that I was prepared to do things that perhaps they were legal, they were um, ethical as far as policing was concerned, but I don't think they necessarily aligned, which is you alluded to in your intro, my own values. Um, and that sort of, uh, we'll, we'll call it coercion of mm. whether it be a, a victim survivor or, or a witness, um, being able to engage with them in such a way that you've developed a trusting professional relationship and then using that and other aspects of perhaps their personality and finding mm-hmm. that sort of that button within them that would um help them decide to become bring involved. Bring them over the line. Yeah. Bring them over the line. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I just yeah. – and I was doing that regularly and probably getting better and better at it as time went by and um, and thinking I was doing a fantastic job, like really enjoying it, but at the same time slowly becoming more and more unwell um, away from that environment and um, – you know, bringing home, I guess, that that inner guilt that I wasn't really even aware was there and managing it in ways that were very unhealthy, um, were unhelpful, were destructive to my, my personal life and my family. Um, but at the same time, going to work ready to go again and being really motivated and enthusiastic because I just had no idea. And I, I, I recall just coming home and you know, having conversations or arguments about everything um, with my family uh, and and just going to the office and thinking everybody is just out of step with what's going on. It was kind of like I remember there's this picture and I, I could, I've never been able to find it, but I remember I saw it one day and it's like this whole army and everybody's marching and there's one person who's like marching on the opposite foot and that's how I felt. I just thought the world had become out, you know, had was out. The whole world was out of step, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of seeing that it was actually me, that was a little bit out of step with reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean, Dave. Because without a victim, or more so a victim, without a victim, you don't have a case. And I used to feel terribly responsible because. If we didn't get the victim over the line to say, yes, I will 
uh, give evidence in court. You and I both know, and a lot of people listening will know, how stressful court is and how it can really... um Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. muck with your head you know like and I'm not talking about the informant because it certainly can with us but I'm talking about a victim and and I think it doesn't matter how strong a victim is it's a whole new ball game when they get up in a witness box and I keep referring to the word hammered because I believe they were and they were hammered by the defence um, or maybe just tricked a bit into because the defence was so good at uh, getting a victim to a position where they had to answer something that maybe they didn't want to or oh, it was just an awful, awful feeling. But without the victim, the crook got away, the offender got away. Did I just say crook? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the suspect, the person of interest. Um <laughs> They'd get away with it and that's what really stuck in my craw. I thought, oh, gee, it was a, it was an awful position to be in, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, to, to stand there and see the, the way, um, yeah, victims, survivors or witnesses were, I, I just think they were demoralised and humiliated often. Um, and, and I don't know, I'm not sort of suggesting that it's a terrible system, um, but no, there, are, there no. are things that, that you see and I guess that you, you're involved in it and there's an exchange of um, emotion and, um, and, and yeah, to see the, the impact that it has on them and uh, the oh. way that the system focuses on, oh, it's, it's really, um, yeah, I think demoralising probably is, is the word that I feel sums it up best. And mm. the, that sort of loss of um, 
uh, loss of faith and almost becoming a victim all over again. Um, oh, and when yes. that sort of when that process that ju- you know, judicial process is your line of defence or or your last mm-hmm. line of hope to to justice and it um, and it demoralises you to the extent that it sometimes I mean look it's I'm not saying it's imperfect and I'm I'm not criticising it in any way but unfortunately the way our, our system. Uh, a justice system operates. It is what it is at, at the moment, and it's no doubt always um, being looked at and reconsidered and uh, trying to be made, I guess, more compassionate to those involved mm. in the crimes. But, mm. um, yeah, I, I just think that um, it sort of really is that becoming a victim of the system, which means you really have nowhere else to go. So what that does to an individual's uh, sense of hope it must be uh, really sort of profound and significant. Yeah, and and really, in a way, I don't think we can get around it, that we are responsible for getting that victim to court, yeah. for, taking the, for taking the statement, uh, for actually conveying them to court, to getting them into the witness box. And, you know, I used to be filled with dread sometimes because I sort of felt I knew what was going to happen. But, you know, and this isn't, um, you know, sticking the knives into uh, defence or prosecutors, whatever it be, because they have a job to do just like us. But I think we have to think more about uh, the fairness, we talk a lot about being fair to the accused and I don't have a problem with that, of course, but I think we also have to be fair with the victim and I don't think it's fair that the victim's um, whole background is brought up. Their count- yeah. Sometimes, you know, their counselling, their sexual history. Yeah. I think we should concentrate more on the actual incident, the actual crime, and I understand why uh, defence prosecutors. I understand why they go why they go back to the victim's behaviour, mm. but I just don't think it, it shows. Well, it shows very little compassion, and I yeah. think for a victim to get up in a, a witness box, oh, it is just. It's demoralising. Your sense of self-worth goes all out. The way. It can do more harm than good. Yeah, oh, and that's the thing. And I, I think, like you sort of alluded to, is that 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 fairness component of of the process. Insofar as we're going to look at every aspect of your personal life from day dot as the mm-hmm. witness or the victim survivor, as opposed to mm-hmm. actually, we won't talk about anything to do uh, with the. You know the person mm. who's supposedly, um, you know, the suspect or um, mm. who's on trial. Um, th- that's it's kind of that in itself creates that sense of um, a, a lack of fairness, particularly in the eyes of the person who's up in the box being, you know, sort of humiliated for some for something that they they've done years ago. And that that all of a sudden means their credibility shot. So it's I think it's it's look it's it's I think it's probably something that everybody knows is a problem. But how you get around it, I don't know. Um, no, I don't either. Because uh, you know it's been in, hasn't it? The justice system has been tweaked over time. But I don't think oh, there's a lot more that they can tweak. But I yeah. don't know about you. But even giving evidence in court, um, whether it be a county supreme, a magistrate's court, it doesn't matter. There's many times I have been humiliated and hung out to dry as well as an informant and it makes you very, very anxious and nervous about giving evidence yourself because you can do the best job in the world. But the uh, defence job is to, you know, find that little um, clink somewhere where you're not too sure about something and, oh, God, they just go for the jugular. However, (laughs) I get... That's oh, our system, and it's yeah. nobody's. I, I don't know how we change it. I suppose it's just through, um, no. you know, going to our local MPs and uh, I don't know, talking I about think, it like we are. I suppose. Yeah, I think for me, like the, the whole the, the the system is what it is, and I mean, having conversations like this no doubt influence 
potential change. But I think what's more important from my perspective or just as important from my perspective um, for for members and those who, who are finding themselves involved in, in the court system is the, to be provided with sufficient awareness of what's going to happen and um, and I don't think that necessarily happens. And I, I mean, even for the for um, you know police, I mean, I certainly reflect on my career and go, you know, early on, you, you went to the odd um, the odd um, contested hearing at the magistrates court, and you know, it was it was sort of uh, challenging, but you really you're there rarely. Um, particularly now with with the you know the new systems that are in place with the court to streamline it and all the rest of it, mm. Um, mm. so you're there rarely, and certainly it's not anything like what you are presented with when you start going to trial. Um, and I think it's that lack of awareness and preparedness to all of a sudden be stepping into those sort of county court matters and seeing how it all unfolds and seeing that. Um, I guess it's it's not always about fairness and justice. It's it's really heavily about the law, um, and um, and then it's kind of you feel a bit betrayed almost because you go, "Wow, hang on a minute, um, yeah. what is going on here?" But and I suppose the other thing that I'll, I'll just touch on quickly is um, with regards to all of that is. What I what I found, which was probably you know uh, something that is an issue certainly to do with me, and and not something that perhaps all members experience, um, but because of that motivation um, and desire to to get a matter to court and you know collect the relevant evidence and all the rest of it, what those investigations became was a little bit about my investigation. Of course, it um, is, yeah. Uh, yep. And and I think that that in itself became a problem because it was about me winning my investigation as opposed to mm-hmm. it's not about me and it's not about my investigation. In fact, it's got nothing to do with me. This is about the person who's come to me and I. every decision I make should be in their best interest. But um, And I think part of that is related to firstly probably my own ego um, but also related to the potential positive outcomes that come with successful prosecutions um, insofar as your career um, or the perception of that. And I think that that probably was, and I said, as I said at the time, I didn't realise it, but in, in hindsight, um, I think that that was part of perhaps my injury is that the, the, the realisation that that's what I was doing. It was kind of like, this is a great job because it's, it's got a, you know, it's got a lot in it. And if I investigate it really well, perhaps I'll look good. And and I think that that's a terrible uh, way to approach any investigation myself um, because uh, it really isn't about my career or me. It should be a case of I need to do the best job that I can for the person who's come and reported it to me, regardless of the outcome and whether or not it helps or disadvantages me and my career. Um so I, I just but, feel but, like there was that. It is about, but it's about figures though, isn't it, Dave? Like to become yeah. a detective. Yes. It, was, it wasn't It was anything about the victims that you dealt with. No. or It was all about how many arrests did you make? How many court cases did you go to? Yeah. How many uh, crooks did you uh, arrest? Like it's all about figures. And yeah. look, in a way, well, no... In a way, I don't know. I don't understand why it is so driven by the number of arrests, for instance, that somebody yeah. makes. You know, there's yeah. people, at, like it's about people and it's about people's emotions and feelings. It's not about bloody figures. Yeah, but I think that's, I mean, it's certainly that in itself is not, you know, just Victoria Police or the role of policing. No, I think that's no, that's I something, agree. you know, everything has to be quantifiable now. Um, it's yep. kind of the way that we measure everything um, as opposed to looking at the quality of the work you're doing as opposed to the quantity. And I guess they, they say that the quality is measured in the outcome, but I, I, I probably disagree with that. And perhaps the quality needs to be measured in a different way. Um, and, and, and is the, the quality of 
um, for example, if you were to engage with somebody and, and be completely transparent about the process and um, your experience, sharing your experiences with the court system and, and all the rest of it, and then that person is then decides, actually, I don't want to go through that. Um, mm. That That's probably, well, it's quantifiable because it's a person that has, is a victim of crime that hasn't been solved, arguably, but and that's the problem. But if you look at it from the quality of service perspective, it's probably fantastic because it's allowing that person to have the, yeah. um, the you know, that sort of concept of self-determination and I'll make the decision whether I want to go ahead with this investigation, not you because it's going to look good in your next application for a promotion or transfer sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and unfortunately, it's something that I don't think anybody goes into the job with that mindset or intent, but unfortunately, it's a little bit like that frog in the in the water that slowly boils and the next thing you know, you're, you're part of that sort of mindset and culture because it's um, – it really is beneficial in in not just the police, but in all organisations. Um, I know I know that we're talking a lot about the struggles as an informant or as a police person, but on the uh, opposite side, there are those just magic moments where you do, and it's, it sounds like a game where you do win a case, but just that euphoria that you see and how it changes the victim, particularly, let's say, how the victim just feels like they're 10 foot tall and yeah. it's all worth it. Like it is one of the best feelings in the world when, to me, when we have won the case and the magistrate or judge will say, remove the prisoner. I just, you know, like, yes, there's a lot of negatives, but, oh, gee, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things we do that are just so wonderful to be a part of. And, you know, and I know you and I, we never forget that. And I hope others don't either because um, it is a fantastic job. But you've just, again, we go back to it, don't we? We've just got to look after ourselves and and we didn't, which brings me to uh, tell me in Socket, it's a really tough gig, Socket, and I take my hat off to so many members. But in your Socket years, is there an investigation that really you're very proud of or that you will never forget for, I don't know, a terrible reason? Can you uh, share with us a, a job or an investigation that has stayed with you? Well, I guess uh, one of the – look, there's a few, and I'll, I'll probably focus on this one only because it was a, a positive outcome. Um, yeah, I think we've probably spoken enough about the the outcomes that are not so great <laughs> and why that is. Yeah. <laughs> and the things that underpin yeah. those those concerns. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there yeah. was look, and it was probably a relatively simple job, but it just it took a little bit of investigation, and and the outcome was fantastic. Um, so it was it was related to uh, somebody who had followed somebody from a train and um, followed them back to their house and behaved inappropriately um, in their vicinity. Um, so it was obviously of a sexual nature. Um, mm-hmm. And there was no no sort of you know we just had this this person who made the complaint and said it was this person and I got off the train so we kind of had a look at the train the train footage and we got a we got an image um, of the person and so we kind of sh- shared that around um, and and we had some calls through Crime Stoppers um, and. We had it. We had what what we thought was a lead, and it turned out that it wasn't. Um, so then we kind of thought, well, we better go back to the drawing board and see where, what else we can find. And so then we just kind of started looking at a lot more footage, and um, and fortunately, I guess we noticed that in one of the shots there was the person had a, a cup of uh, like a cup of coffee, um, just in a you know clear uh, you know plain white cup. So that was kind of our thought well we better we better sort of see if we can't find who sells coffee in the area and have a look at all their footage and so we started oh my god good luck with that yeah and and that's what we did so we we literally um started going to all the coffee shops and um 
and of course it was almost sort of you know a long way down the track that we eventually went to the to the um the coffee shop that's open for like a few hours every day at the actual train station uh, it was just like yeah. a little kiosk it wasn't even part of the station it was like somebody had just got this little yeah um, shack set up and um and we went to them and we sort of were getting to the point that i'm probably not gonna be able to get get much further with this almost um yeah. but then we went to the um to this this particular gentleman in that in that store and we said uh, you know here's the photo and he goes oh I remember the guys' runners because they were brand new and they were like really white, shiny white, um, and you know looked big on his feet. And I was like, yeah. "That is unbelievable." Um, so anyway, we, we then we used that, and and then we sort of he he sort of advised us if he, he was going to let us know if he saw him again and if the guy came and bought coffee. And then yeah, it sort of went from there, and we we used that information to investigate things a little bit further, and um, wow. and eventually. Um, we caught up with him. He, he and and I sort of look back now, and I, I can't remember exactly how we got to the address that he was at because it, it wasn't his address. It was he was staying in like a little shed, like literally a shed. He was he was here on a um, uh, maybe a student visa, I think, and yeah. um, just living in somebody's shed. But somehow we managed to um, to track it down to this address, and and sure enough, we we grabbed. We, you know, picked him up and took him back to the office and interviewed him, and mm. um, uh, and I guess it was a good result. Did he roll over? He did eventually. He did eventually. Yes. Initially, he just denied, 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 um, and then, but eventually, for some reason, um, it must have been, you know, something that we asked or said or whatever it may have been um, that he that he eventually did make full admissions and. And it was, you know, it was a really good outcome, um, mm. given given this the seriousness of what he'd done, um, and the likelihood of of doing that, uh, you know, performing that sort of behaviour or activity again would oh, yeah. would certainly have yeah. been high, particularly had had he have gotten away with with that particular incident, and um, and it was, yeah, it was really quite a brazen thing to have done. So that was a really good outcome, and it. Um, and you know, he sort of spent some some time in jail, and then my understanding is once he did get out, then he was deported. So um, mm. yeah, so that was a you know that was a really good story, and the people the the victim uh, survivor was was really grateful, and it was nice to have that win. But I think I've got a, you, you said a, you made a statement before this before I sort of talked about this, and and it sort of really. Um, is something that I, I feel strong about, and you talked about, you know, winning the game. And I think for me, it was really exactly what it became. It became a bit of a game, yes. Um, yes. and it was like a game of chess for me. And um, and I think what I felt in the end, which um, which is, I guess, we're looking back at it because once again, I didn't realise what was going on at the time. I just knew that I was wasn't the person I wanted to be and I didn't like looking in the mirror very much but I felt like it was a game of chess but unfortunately the pawns were actually people and um, and and they became arguably a little bit expendable if it meant that I could win the game of chess and that's probably the best description that I can give of how I felt my police career, uh, what it evolved into. Mm. Yeah, it, which is quite sad, isn't it, because – it isn't a game, and I hope I didn't. Um, I can't remember what I actually said, but I think um, I think I did say something like it is no, almost yeah. like like a game, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it is. and you're right, yeah. and it shouldn't be because, as I said, it's people's emotions and feelings, and well, their lives, really, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But but then that exactly that um, that being able to identify somebody through a bloody coffee cup yeah yeah you know oh my that is that is a great story a great story um and so we are talking about your decline now yeah how long into your career did you start thinking there's something wrong here Next week, Dave shares with us the moment that he realised it was him who had the problem, not everybody else as he thought, and how one woman's desperation to help him, and which he initially took as interference in his life, 
actually saved it. Dave tells us of the anguish, almost torture, that he encountered in organising for a petrified interstate witness to come to Melbourne to give evidence and the anger that he felt at how she was treated by the system. To the point, he went home that night and advised his superiors it was his last shift. He'd had enough. But then he was managed so well by his superiors that he was able to return to work but it certainly wasn't smooth sailing. One day, 30 minutes into his first shift at a news station, the phone began to ring and he watched it (laughs) and he realised he was finished for good. He just could not answer that phone. He froze. His time was done. But we've often heard that saying, haven't we, that when one door closes, another opens and open it did for Dave. Dave now has many strings to his bow, one of which has been to start up a group with his mate Cleve called TJF, The Journey Forward. What a great initiative. Have a listen next week to hear more about this wonderful idea, which is helping others see life more positively. Thank you and have a great week. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.